Understood is a resource I have recommended for many years to parents looking for support with learning and thinking differences such as ADHD, dyslexia, and more. And I'm subsequently excited to tell you about their podcast, Understood Explains. This season, the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. They cover topics such as how to tell if your child needs an IEP, common myths about special education, and the difference between IEPs and 504 plans. I love how Understood Explains breaks down the overwhelm by unpacking an important topic each season and then drilling down further into key basics in each episode. Most episodes are between 10 to 15 minutes, and episodes are available in both English and Spanish. So fantastic, right? To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, your host, Christine Ko, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you will come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Hello, friends. Welcome to today's episode. I cannot wait for you to hear my guest today. Dr. Tina Payne Bryson wears many impactful hats. She is a mom of three, a best selling author, and a psychotherapist. She is also the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, a multidisciplinary clinical practice and of the Play Strong Institute, a center devoted to the study, research, and practice of play therapy through a neurodevelopmental lens. And in addition to all of these incredible things she does, she is one of the most kind and generous people I know. Tina is someone I met, insert air quotes, during the pandemic, and she is now a trusted colleague and friend. And since you all know how passionate I am about stories, I want to share one specific story to illustrate how Tina shows up as a caring human. Last year, I was chatting with a friend at a work event, and they mentioned they were reading a completely game-changing parenting book, and I asked who had written it, and they said, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. I may have squeaked a little. I was pretty excited, and I said, Tina is amazing. She's a friend. I swear they looked as if I said I had Beyonce's phone number. Anyway, after I got home from the trip, I fired off a quick email to tell Tina about that moment because I think it is so powerful to hear about moments of impact that you might not otherwise know about. And I pretty much fell out of my chair when she wrote back right away and said that the story meant so much to her and that if I could get this person's address, she would send some signed books, which she did. Incredible, right? And I will leave it to you, my dear friends, to imagine my friend's reaction when those books landed on their doorstep. Welcome, Tina. Hello. <laughs> Hi. Oh, thank you so much. That's such a fun story. I I love surprises, so I love surprising other people too. Um, and I like one of my languages of love is gifts. So I love buying gifts and giving gifts, um, even when people don't know they're coming. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for your beautiful introduction. Oh my gosh, you're so welcome. And I so appreciate your time, especially given how busy you are. And actually your mention of the word gifts reminds me that I should tell listeners that despite all the very busy things that you do one year, not long after we had met, so we didn't even know each other that well, my birthday was coming up and you put together a <laughs> gift specific Pinterest board all for me. I and I, I had people I buy several things off of that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I do? That's all that all started because I'm a super easygoing person. I roll with the punches. I'm super flexible. Um, but I have, I, the way I language it is that I have, um, really good specific particular taste. I'm kind of, but my family says I'm picky. So, um, after many years of my husband kind of being annoyed of, me saying like, oh, you're so sweet. You're so thoughtful, but do you have the receipt? Um, <laughs> then I 
I started a Pinterest page and it's literally like you can go on there and look, it's literally called things you can buy me. And I I put things on there, you know, various price ranges to make it easy for my, you know, people who want to buy me presents. Um, And I just, I love giving the best gifts. I like, I love finding like the coolest things that, you know, whatever. So I was, it was such a fun little diversion for me. I was probably supposed to be writing a book or something, but I loved finding your wish list for you. Yeah. And it was shockingly on point given that we were pretty new friends. So I just thought that was incredible. (laughs) Like clearly a second career as a personal shopper consider. Um, well, I have a lot of questions for you. Oh my gosh. I just, um, I mean, I guess let's just start, but I want to start a little bit zoomed out because I think the big picture is important. And I think many people know there's that phrase, the days are long, but the years are short. Right. Is it that? Yeah, that's the right way. And so I was thinking of this advice, particularly based on a piece of advice you gave me for a CNN article I wrote about supporting tween and teen developing brains. And you recommended not judging adolescents based on what happens in a day or a week or a month, and to instead think about their progress over time and Mm -hmm. ask yourself, are they more mature and responsible than they were six months ago? And this advice stopped me in my tracks. And I've, you know, I've talked to a lot of experts, but it really helped me reframe my thinking and reactions to my own teens behavior. So I guess first, thank you. And (laughs) second, for the 101 for our listeners, because we have parents of all kids with all of all ages, is if you could share the 101 on how long it takes for a kid's brain to fully develop. And then second, why that long developmental runway might seem a little discouraging, but why it's actually a good thing in terms of our impact as parents. Oh, that's so great. And I actually love it when people share their, the advice I gave them back to me, because it's such a good reminder. I need to follow, you know, it's so, it's like, oh yeah, I believe that, but I haven't Mm -hmm. practiced that this week or whatever. So it's really helpful to hear that back. Yes, it is. You know, when I'm, when I'm with an audience and I say, okay, your child's brain will not finish its rapid, amazing, chaotic um, development <laughs> until the mid to late 20s. And I see them slump in their chairs. And I feel yeah. like probably at these parent ed events, we should probably serve wine and comfort <laughs> foods. But I, I see them slump in their chairs and I say, no, this is a great thing because when you grow up in an environment that is not safe, you have to grow up really fast. Because in many, many ways, children are safer than they've ever been. Of course, there's huge disparities in terms of safety um, and that we still have so much um, so much progress that needs to be made compared to what it was like 100 years ago where, you know, your child could die of tetanus um, mm-hmm. or, you know, things like that. The world is a safer place. Car seats, you know, kids are not smoking as much like all of these things. Well, let's not get into the vaping crisis, but <laughs> when the world is safer. Mm-hmm. Um, then the, we, can t- we can sort of take our time to grow up. But here's what's amazing about this. Because it takes so long, it means there's a much wider window for them to have experiences that can shape their brains. There's, so, and to me, it's actually really encouraging. I'm a mom to three boys. My eldest is about to be 23. Mm. And, you know, I mean, he's an amazing kid. He's amazing. I, all of my kids, I think, are amazing in their own unique ways. But sometimes I look at his behavior and I'm like, thank God the brain is still developing. This is not the final product, right? Right. So it can be actually really encouraging. And what's really key to know is that it's the repeated experiences that our kids have that shape who their adult brain becomes. And I think that's such an important um, thing to guide us in terms of what are the, how are they spending their time? What are the repeated experiences they have relationally with me? And and I have to say two messages of hope in there, too. One is that you don't have to be perfect. You can mess up all the time. And I know we're going to talk about that. Um, And and still, is your child, the majority of your child's experience relationally with you, positive, supportive, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And then the other piece that's really encouraging is that history is not ever destiny. (laughs) So what Mm -hmm. I mean by that, well, there's lots of ways we can talk about that. But one specific way related to this is that if you make a change today to start having a different kind of experience relationally with your child, or you start kind of backing off of something um, that you're putting your kid too much pressure on your kid, those repeated experiences impact the brain too. So we really can make a shift at any point Mm -hmm. 
Um, so yeah, it takes a long time, but it also means we have a lot more time to get it right, mm-hmm. to make shifts and changes and to allow that brain to kind of unfold. And I think that advice about looking at the big picture is so helpful because as parents, you know, like I got an email from a teacher yesterday that it didn't make me too happy. Um, you know, and I'm like, okay, but he's doing so much better academically this year than he did last year. Like I'm not getting as many notes from the teacher this year. So we're moving in the right direction. It doesn't mean I don't address the email. It doesn't mean I don't say, Hey, I'm, you know, this is what I heard. I'm sure you're aware of this. What's your plan to make a change here? And how can we support Mm -hmm. you in making your changes? Right. You notice the language I'm saying there. I'm not um, taking over. But I think it's really important that we don't stay locked in fear and we instead say, okay, it takes the brain a long time to develop. Development is not linear, so it's never all progress. There's always ups and downs and it's jagged and Mm -hmm. there's regressions before progressions. And then to say, okay, but are we moving in the right direction? And that's that's really helpful to quell our neurotic fears sometimes. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And I'm so glad you mentioned the really quite hopeful potential for course correction, because I think that I have heard from so many parents in so many instances where, you know, insert whatever the scenario is, and there's a feeling that, oh, no, it's too late. I messed everything up. And and that's not like clearly not the case. So I'm so glad you you um, flagged that really important. Yeah. OK, well, so you had mentioned different circumstances. Um I don't know, I guess I'll just say adversities, perhaps. And I think that one of the great painful ironies of modern parenting is that we parents, present company most definitely included, can sometimes overcomplicate things. And so, so, yeah, for, for example, I think there is an awful lot of, you know, again, I'm using air quotes, my kid will be better, choose whatever definition you want to of what better means in that situation. So my kid will be better if I do X, Y, or Z, where X, Y, or Z are material things. But I love how you frame how the way we can truly support kids and show up for them is a lot simpler and doesn't involve money. (laughs) So I would love for you to explain the four S's and what I think is such a genius and simple, um, equation representation. And I had to like go look it up again to make sure I had it right. But it's adversity minus support equals fragility versus adversity plus support equals resilience. I'm saying that slow so people can write it down. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, okay. First of all, obviously there's huge disparities in, in, in privilege with related to how curated and cultivated and um, overcomplicated some parents make things. So I always want to make note of that. But I will say that in a lot of communities and and often, you know, parents who listen to podcasts like this, I'm kind of holding your audience in mind. We can get really insane about the things that we devote our time to present company included as well. Like, you know, I remember one time, making an Instagram post about, and and people went crazy for it about like, if you don't have your child's lunch cut into woodland creatures in a bento (laughs) box, like I promise they're probably going to be okay. You know, I mean, this Ah. is, it's, it's making fun of this, but I, you know, I, like I said, I'm kind of, I, I can be, I really like things done well and beautifully. And I have a lot of opinions about how that should be done, which doesn't make me always the most fun person to live with. Um, my husband's constantly saying, well, you know, I know you like it a hundred percent, but what if we just got it to like 97%, (laughs) you know? Um, so anyway, I, I can, I really can get caught up in that. And I think parents, we often do kind of externalize and especially from this really competitive lens of like, we want our children to do well. And that often means doing better than other kids. Mm. Um, when, because of a scarcity situation around college and all of these things. But I think what can happen is, you know, we're like, oh, well, I want my child to be resilient. So I'm going to sign them up for mindfulness classes. And my child's going to be more mindful than your mindful child because I'm putting them in the more expensive class. And so now we're doing competitive mindfulness, right? Like it just Mm -hmm. gets crazy. Here's what I want to say. There are so many ways as parents that we can direct our attention, our resources, our fears, 
our time, all of these things. But I want to be really clear here about what the science tells us because it simplifies everything. Mm-hmm. And here's, here is what it is. And this is what the book, The Power of Showing Up, that Dan Siegel and I wrote is focused on. One of the best predictors for how well children turn out on everything they've been measured on, and this is uh, longitudinal studies over decades and decades and decades done cross-culturally, then one of the best predictors is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. And let me be really clear about what I mean when I say secure attachment. I'm not talking about attachment parenting. Um, I'm talking about under the developmental psychology umbrella, looking at what mammals do. An attachment is a biological inborn instinct to get close to your caregiver, especially when you're in distress. Mm. And the purpose of it is to ensure our better chances of survival. So if you're a little bear cub in the forest and you see a predator or you get hurt or something frightens you, you have a biological instinct to get close to your mama bear or your papa bear or whatever attachment bear you found. Sometimes it's even cross species. So maybe there's a monkey that's your attachment figure, whatever. But your biological instinct is to get close to your attachment figure, to be connected and protected. And what that does is it ensures as mammals that we have a better chance of surviving. So what attachment is, is this biological drive to be connected and protected, particularly during times of distress. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that as parents, the thing that we want to do because that secure attachment where if our child has a need, we see it and we show up for it. Okay. That's kind of what we're talking about. Connection and protection that when our children can reliably count on most of the time, their parent will do that for them. That's what leads to secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And it's what, what our children need most from us. It's what we should be giving our attention and thought and resources to. So what Dan and I did in the power of showing up is to say, How do we do that? If we want our children to be securely attached to us, to know that they can count on us to show up for them, then what does that look like in the moments they won't get out of the bathtub or when they're slamming their door and screaming at you um, or, you know, you're trying to set a boundary or whatever in the everyday moments of parenting? So we came up with the four S's. The four S's are safe, seen, soothed, and secure. So obviously we could do a whole episode on this, but I'll just Mm -hmm. hit quickly Safe is not only knowing that your caregiver is going to protect you from harm, but it's also knowing that um, they are going to make sure you're okay. And that ideally we as caregivers are not the source of terror, um, that we are not the source of them not feeling safe. So it's really about um, them feeling emotional, physical safety, but also that we are letting them know I've got you. When children don't feel safe, when they don't feel like their grownups are in charge, um, they have to be more hypervigilant to watch for threat in the world. But if they have a sense, my parent has got me, um, then they can um, spend their time and and cognitive resources learning and exploring. So that's Mm -hmm. safe. Scene is where we're looking beyond the behavior and we're really looking to their internal landscape. And so that when they have a behavior or they are are talking about their life or whatever, we really are like, oh, that must have been embarrassing for you. Or, um, wow, that sounds really hard. We're, we're really connecting to their internal experience so that ultimately they grow up and say, my parent knew me and they loved me and saw me for who I am, not who they wanted me to be. Um, the third one is soothed. And that's really the idea that at their worst, that's when they need us the most. And when they're at their worst, it often looks like really reactive behavior or, you know, a lot of drama, but soothing is comfort and connection and really bringing your presence to say, I will help you. I'm here for you. That doesn't mean rescuing them. It's really much more about a quality of presence. And then what the fourth S is, is secure is that when you have enough repeated predictable experiences, not perfect ones, where your parent shows up for you, where they help you feel safe and seen and soothed, then your brain develops the wiring um, that leads to secure attachment, which is where you are secure and knowing your brain has wired to expect that if you have a need, they're going to show up for you. They're going to be there for you. So I'll just give a really quick example of this. Um, when my son was for and refusing to get out of the bathtub. Um, and by the way, boundaries and limits help our children feel safe. So I'm holding a boundary. It's time to get out. 
He refuses to get out. He's screaming at me, splashing me. First thing I do is I try to stay calm myself because I don't want to join the storm. I want to be the eye of the storm. Mm -hmm. And he's not going to feel safe if I start screaming. So I say, um, first, I calm myself down with a long, deep sigh and just connect to my body. And I remind myself at his worst, that's when he needs you the most. And I say, it's time to get out. You can get out or I will help you out. He says, I'm not getting out. And I slip my hands under his little slippery armpits. And as I'm lifting him out of the tub, holding my boundary, helping him feel safe because I'm staying regulated, I say, oh, buddy, you're so mad about getting out of the tub. You really didn't want to get out. So that's Mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. Then I wrap the towel around him and pull him to me and hug him and say, it's so hard when when you have such big feelings. And I'm right here with you while you're feeling those big feelings. That's soothed. It's just mostly showing up in that moment. And then over time, he comes to know that, like, I can handle big feelings. My mom can handle whatever comes up. Like, she's got me. And so that's an example of that. And I'll say one final thing, Christine, and that is that there are a million moments throughout the week where I'm not sure what to if I know the right answer for what to do or what to say or how to handle something. Um, But I will say that these four S's are my North star. Mm -hmm. They're always the right answer. So if I can respond to my child or make a decision about how I'm going to handle a parenting moment where I can help my child feel safe and seen and soothed and secure and knowing I've got him, I'm going to keep showing up. I can handle things. um, Then that is always the right answer. And Here's the other piece I have to mention. And by the way, this isn't just for our children. We need this throughout our lifespan. So we need the four S's. We need it from our partners. We need it from our best friends. We still need it from our parents if they're still living. Um, This is what I try to do in my marriage, um, all of these things. But here's the deal. We are going to rupture and violate the four S's every day. For sure, we're going to. Mm -hmm. But the key is, is that when we make the repair with our kids and we're like, hey, I didn't really like the way I handled that. I really wish I had done that differently. Um, Will you forgive me? Or can I have a do-over or whatever? That actually creates a sense of safety. And it really does fit back into the, it's like you're right back in the four S's Mm -hmm. because then your child knows they can count on you to keep showing up and that the relationship isn't over. It's not damaged, et cetera. So for me, this is everything. This is really what matters most in my relationship with my child. And it guides every decision I make um, and all the ways that I think is where we really want to focus. Oh, so good. And I will say your example was clearly effective because it left my eyes a little watery. So on that note, (laughs) Tina, thank you for sharing that. And we're going to take a (laughs) quick break and we'll be right back. People often talk about the impact of things like stress, hormone fluctuations, and nutrition on skin, but did you know those things impact your hair too? If you've been dealing with hair thinning, you are not alone, and Nutrafol is here to help. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement, with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. I appreciate that they offer formulas tailored to different life stages, such as postpartum and menopause, as well as different lifestyles, such as plant-based diets. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after taking Nutrafol Women's Hair Growth Supplement for six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering Edit Your Life listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code EDIT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. That's Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, and use promo code EDIT. That's Nutrafol.com, using promo code EDIT. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you struggle with boundaries and the general complexities of peopling? Relationships are necessary to our well-being, and some relationships are just, well, complicated. A good chunk of the work I have done in therapy centers on relationships, how to own my part of the story, how to let go of relationships that are toxic, and how to navigate challenging relationships in a way that doesn't drain me. And all of this work helps me show up better for myself and also as a partner, mom, friend, family member, and business owner. If you're thinking of starting therapy, check out BetterHelp. This online therapy platform was designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash edit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash edit. Hello, friends. We're back with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson dropping all manner of wisdom. And <laughs> I'm going to just dive right in because I have several more questions for you. So I think one of the hardest things I have wrestled with personally as a parent is not overcompensating and specifically making decisions that are out of line with my values based on my own baggage around my lived experience. So, which was, you know, scarcity and chaos and everything else, lots of not safe experiences. So do you have a key piece of grounding advice for how parents can let go of their own issues to focus on what their kid actually needs in that moment? I think that the thing that most gets us in trouble around that piece is fear. Yeah. So in those moments when we're overcompensating or not sure if we are or if we should, et cetera, what's typically driving us there is a discomfort in the mild sort of part of it all the way to fear. So somewhere between mild um, discomfort and fear is often what's happening inside us without our awareness. So what happens then is I'm like, okay, so let's give a really practical example. Your kid um, isn't uh, hasn't done well on a project at school and it's due tomorrow. Um, and so here are some overcompensation examples uh, that we might be, you know, c- contemplating. Like I'm going to email the teacher and I'm going to say she's not feeling well and she needs an extension, right? Or you, so you sort of step in and. Um, give your child, you know, a a longer runway to do something or, um, or you take over and you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to do it. Um, or, um, or they're struggling socially and you start, you start, um, constructing, um, all of these social opportunities for your child, right? There are times to do every single one of those things that I said. Mm. And that's one of the frustrating things about, as you know, Christine is in doing this work is you say one thing and then people think, they take you, you know, all the way to a hundred percent with what you said without looking in context. There are times where it might be appropriate to help your child get some social traction, right? So I'm not saying don't ever do that, but what guides our decision-making and what kind of leads us there is our own discomfort. Um, and so here's, here's the advice. And then I'll give another example. When we're trying to decide, do I step in here and help my child? Is this support and help? Is this the Four S, as Tina was talking about, about soothing and come connection stuff, or is this overcompensation in a way that's you know not good for my kid? We have to ask ourselves: Am I making this decision because it's for my child's own good, and that we have to be really critical thinkers about how we answer that? Because of course we can easily answer the question the way we want to hear ourselves answer. Yeah, it's of course it's for my child's good, but we really need to think about it. Or am I doing this because I don't want to feel the experience of anxiety here? Or I'm I'm worried that if my child doesn't get a good grade in this math class, that eventually she, her GPA will be terrible and then she won't get into the college of her dreams. And then that'll mean she's going to live in a van down by the river and never amount to anything, right? So I think when we do fear-based parenting, what happens is we step in and we start taking over in ways that are not good for our child. So I'll give an example. There was a, a recent article in the Atlantic about parents being afraid of um, their children going on sleepovers. And so a lot of parents are not doing, letting their kids go on sleepovers. Um, and, you know, there may be a specific reason someone doesn't want to do that uh, related to a particular child or a particular family. Obviously, all of these things need to be looked at in context. But a lot of times parents are restricting their children from doing things like, okay, I'm going to never let them go on a sleepover because I'm afraid of X, Y, and Z. But that decision is likely based on the parent not being able to tolerate the discomfort of the anxiety of knowing they can't protect their child hundred mm-hmm. percent. And it's not necessarily in the good, in the best interest of the child. So I think that when we overcompensate, we are communicating to children, 
I don't trust that you can handle this or you're not going to do very well at this. So I better step in. And we don't mean to communicate that, but it's absolutely what our children get from it. Mm-hmm. So the way we do it matters a lot too, is to say, you know, um, Hey, it looks like you've waited until like <laughs> it's love, lovely story. I love to tell my son in eighth grade came to me. Um, and I was, I was writing the no drama discipline book. So I, I was not following my own advice in this moment, but, um, I was really stressed out. I had three kids and then I was also taking care of my twin niece and nephew who were like three at the time. And, um, I was solo parenting. My husband was with the, with my father-in-law in the hospital. Like it was, it was a really, really chaotic week. And my eighth grader came to me on a Sunday night and said, Hey, can you take me to Michael's craft store? And you know, he's not a crafter, Christine. He does not, you know, he didn't want to go buy craft materials. And I was like, why? And of course, you know, he had a project due Monday morning, you know, uh-huh. um, making a 3d model of a cell. And, um, I was so mad at him. And, um, of course, you know, went into like full lecture, like you're so disrespectful of my time. You think I can just drop everything. And why did you wait until the last minute? You know, nothing helpful in that moment. Um, but I said, look, your bedtime is still nine o'clock. Um, and so I will take you, but I don't have time to help you tonight. And what it is, is going to be what it is. And he ended up getting a D, which, you know, I could still be really empathetic. Like, I know that that's disappointing to you. You would hope to get a better grade. But in my, but I can also let him face what we call natural consequences, which are nothing parents do. It's what happens in the world. Um, and then we could reflect about that and, and, and what to do there. I could have easily stepped in and made a beautiful 3D model of a cell. Um, mm-hmm. But that would have not been helpful to him. It would have been to make me feel better because then I wouldn't be worried about the grade he was going to get or whatever. So I think we have to ask, is this really about my kid? Or is this more about me and my internal experience that I'm trying to control and regulate? Mm, mm, yeah, that is, uh, I think that's right on the money. I have another question related to baggage, actually. So I think it's very <laughs> natural for many people to raise kids, their kids, the way they were raised, because yep. in the words of my former therapist, you only know what you know. <laughs> so based on your that's experience, good. what do you think is one of the most outdated and perhaps detrimental forms of discipline and in contrast what would be a more effective flip side oh my gosh I wish we had a whole episode on this too um so you know I wrote a book with Nancy called no drama discipline and and this is a huge part of my life's work is rethinking how we look at children's behavior and how we respond to it that's like one of the biggest parts of my life's work that I'm so passionate about I think um the biggest outdated thing is thinking that punishment and reactivity on parents' part helps kids learn. I think, mm-hmm. here, let me say it this way. Let me say it this way. And of course, you know, that's so ingrained in not only our own experiences personally, but our society, our culture yeah. still yeah. is very much like that. But here's here's the thesis that, uh, let me say, instead of talking about what's outdated, let me say what I think we need to up-level to and, or okay. to upgrade to. And that is this, the whole point and purpose of discipline is to, is to raise children who become self-disciplined human beings, where they make the right decision without you looking, without you being there, right? So they are self-disciplined people. That's our end goal. That's the whole point and purpose of discipline. The way you get there is that as development unfolds, they have lots of repeated experiences of building skills and learning in order to get them there. Okay. So they, things like practicing, waiting your turn, things like, um, pausing before action, um, all of those things. Right. Mm -hmm. And that happens as development unfolds, like, right. Three-year-olds aren't very good at impulse control. 13-year-olds aren't very good at impulse control all the time. 23-year-olds are much better at it. Right. So it's, it's all these, like in the context of development, we want them to have lots of repeated experiences of learning and building skills. So the focus of this then means that what discipline is and the way people usually think about discipline is punishment and consequences. Like that's what discipline is. No, discipline is teaching and building skills. Mm-hmm. So every discipline moment, I should be asking myself, what is it I want my child to learn in this moment? And what's the most effective way for them to learn it? And when children are reactive, they are not able to learn well. And when parents are reactive, we are not able to teach well. So in the name of discipline, which of course I mean teaching and skill building, timing is everything. 
We may want to use the four S's, get our kids regulated because when, so the brain is either in a reactive state where it can't learn, which is where a lot of behavioral problems come anyway, right? And so that's usually when we do the discipline and throw consequences or punishments at them, which they don't learn from. On the other hand, the brain can be receptive. So we may comfort and connect and, or give our child some space. Then when they're regulated, that's when it's time to discipline. And that's when we help them have repeated experiences of learning and building skills. So we might say, I know, you know, it's not okay to be that rude to your sister. You were clearly really upset. Mm -hmm. What was going on for you? Because I know, you know, that's not okay. So tell me about that. What was that like for you? And you're giving them, just like when I lift weights and I do reps, my muscle gets stronger. What I'm doing in that moment through this reflective conversation is giving them reps, tuning into their own like situation, like giving insight, like, yeah, I guess I was feeling really resentful of her. Okay, well, let's talk more about that. What do you think? Where do you think that came from? Right. And so it's really about giving them an experience of insight. And then you say, you know, it's okay to be frustrated or mad or feel resentful, but it's not okay to be so disrespectful. So what could you do differently next time? So then we're talking about skill building and preparing for better success the next time. And then we might say something like, do you think you should go make it right with your sister? Like, what do you think would go and make things right? So then you're giving her experiences of insight, empathy, um, practicing for the future. When it, with little kids, you could do some role play, et cetera. But it's really about teaching and teaching and teaching mm-hmm. and, and making sure they're ready to learn and making sure you're ready to teach. And when we do that, punishment is rarely a good way to teach. Um, and we don't and kids don't behave better because we make them feel worse. Kids don't behave better because we, by, and by the way, here's, this is a, an adjunct here. If we use threat-based parenting, like if you don't such and such, I'm going to, or whatever, right? When we, we throw threats at them. If threat-based discipline is your go-to, eventually you will lose. Your child like if you have eventually have a high schooler and you're like, you can't go out this weekend, you're, you're have to, you have to be, you're grounded. And they're like, well, no, I'm going. What are you going to do? Like, unless you're <laughs> physically able and willing to restrain them or to call the cops, which I do not recommend doing, you could lose. Mm-hmm. And so it's always going to be a, a losing game in the end. So we don't want to do threat-based parenting. We want to do um, skill building and teaching and letting Kids make mistakes just like we do and making them right. Boundaries and limits are key. And so this is the final thing I'll say here. What we've known for 70 years is still what science is supporting. And that is that the way that we ought to be parenting when it comes to discipline is high on structure, limits, boundaries, but high on emotional responsiveness and connection. Mm. So we want to be high on structure and high on nurture, high on both of them. So Permissive parenting is outdated. We know better. (laughs) Um, Gentle parenting is not, people call it, use this phrase gentle parenting, but there are lots of ways people define that. Gentle parenting is not permissive parenting. It's still holding boundaries, but doing it relationally in a connected way. And so that's, I think, um, where where we are now. High connection Mm. and high nurture. Oh my gosh. So, so good. Well, you know, we're talking about, obviously, a a resounding theme is coming to it calm, addressing things, you know, when the brain is ready to handle it. And I just wanted to ask one little follow-up about that because you've talked about the survive and thrive moments. And, you know, the reality is frantic, frustrated parenting moments are so common. People feel terrible about them. Yeah. And I would just, I'm a huge fan of cognitive reframing. I've been doing it all week for myself for some really difficult stuff. And so I would just love for you to share a really quick explanation of this reframe about how when you feel in those difficult moment moments, like you're going to lose it, you're terrible. You're just trying to survive. How can one reframe their thinking to that moment as one of opportunity? I'm so glad you brought it up through the survive and thrive lens, you know, in the whole brain child, Dan Siegel. And I talk about that and that we we sort of think like, oh, there are things we can do to help our child thrive. And then we're also in these survive moments. But what we challenge there is that how we handle the survive moments is thrive. They're not Mm -hmm. necessarily separate. And I'm so glad you brought this up because 
parental shame spiral is like an everyday occurrence, right? Like we do, we mess up all the time. And in, in my books, I tell my own stories and, um, and let me, let me give an example here to walk through how I want to answer this. So I was playing, um, Yahtzee with my boys, all three of them at one point, and they were fighting with each other. And to me, that was one of the most unpleasant parts of, um, of parenting when they were younger. It was just the, the fighting between siblings, which is yep. very typical <laughs> and actually is evidence that they will become friends later. And it's how they learn relational resilience and all these wonderful opportunities that are not fun to walk through. So um, they were fighting with each other. It was escalating, escalating, escalating. I f- I'm calm for like 30 minutes. I handle myself for 30 minutes and I'm patient, patient, patient until I'm not. And then I flip my lid and I scream at them and I'm, or no, no, my first, my first entry into crazy mom land is, um, sarcasm. That's not (laughs) nice. So uh, immature sarcasm. It's definitely image. So I say, Oh, it's, I'm so glad we're having family game night. This is just a blast. I'm just loving, enjoying my time with you guys. Like I start going into really immaturity, but eventually I scream um, and I throw the dice across the room like a crazy person. And okay, so bad parenting moment. This is not the parent I want to be. I'm going to feel terrible about this later. I'm going to tell my husband about it later and just be like, oh my God, you know, I just don't want to yell like that. And their little faces when I yell and then I feel so horrible, right? So I can continue to go down the parenting shame spiral, which actually science tells us leaves me more vulnerable to losing my shit again the next day. Mm -hmm. Because when we sit in shame, it actually keeps our brains not as receptive, not as flexible, not as resilient. So shame spiral makes us vulnerable to more ruptures. So instead of going through to that place, what I'm going to do is a reframe. I love that you use that word. I'm going to think about this. First of all, I'm going to repair with my kids. And I did right away. I just said, oh, I'm so sorry. I wish I had handled that differently. That was scary. Can I have a do-over, right? So I make the repair with them. And that is good for them. The science says that when we mess up, as long as we make the repair, that's actually good for our kids because Mm -hmm. they learn relational resilience and all these great things. But here's what I'm going to do about my own experience. I'm going to practice some gentleness with myself. And I'm going to say to myself, okay, instead of going into shame spiral, I'm going to become really curious about what just happened. And when we go into places of curiosity, it keeps our brains open and resilient and receptive, right? We're we're accessing prefrontal and and all the more higher level parts of our brain. So I'm going to become curious and say, okay, what got in the way for me to be the parent I wanted to be there? Mm -hmm. And when I ask that question, there's this underlying assumption that I want to be a good parent and I want to, and I, I typically am, but something got in my way. What was that? What do I need? So then I could say, oh my God, I'm so exhausted. And I haven't talked to another adult in three days. And I haven't peed by myself in three weeks. And I'm, I'm stretched. I'm stretched beyond, you know, capacity. Um, So then I can focus on, okay, what do I need to give myself what I need? And then the other piece of opportunity there is for me to make sense of that experience. Because as earlier I said in the attachment literature that one of the best predictors for how well kids turn out is that they have what's called secure attachment with us. The number one predictor for how well we are able to provide secure attachment to our children is not whether or not we had it with our own parents, thank God, because that'd be about 25 to 35% of the population that would have Mm -hmm. an insecure pattern of attachment. But what, what is the number one predictor is that we've made sense of those experiences we had growing up. So this becomes an opportunity for me to go, okay, what was that about? And sometimes the answer is, I was just frustrated and they're annoying and I haven't peed by myself in three weeks, right? But other times it's like, gosh, you know, when my kids are fighting like that, I get really triggered. And it reminds me of all the yelling my dad did. And it Mm -hmm. freaks me out. And I notice my body tenses up and my heart starts beating really fast. And I start feeling really anxious and panicky. And that's what that's about. Okay. So now I can start unpacking that. So anytime we have these ruptures or these mistakes that we make as parents, go to curiosity Mm. and use it as an opportunity to say, what is it I need? What got in my way? And what was that about? And it becomes an opportunity to move out of our stuck history into self-care and into a making sense process that makes it less likely that we're going to continue those old patterns. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. 
This is all so incredible, Tina. I just feel like there's um there's this is an episode that I think people will need to listen to and re-listen to and re-listen to because there's <laughs> so much genius in it. Tina, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back for a couple more questions. Did you know that hyaluronic acid naturally occurs in our skin but decreases gradually as we age, leading to thinner, drier skin? If you're looking for support hydrating your skin from the inside out, check out one of the tools in my hydration arsenal, Rituals Hyacera, which I take every morning. Rituals products are tested and validated by a third party for allergens, microbes, and heavy metals, and Hyacera is clinically proven to reduce fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. They also engage in industry-leading sustainability standards and are a female-founded B Corp, which means they hold themselves accountable to not just their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. Want to join me in hydrating from the inside out? Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash edit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash edit for 25% off. Especially in this digital age, since we're well beyond handwritten journals and letters to convey history, the preservation of stories is so important, especially from the moms and mom figures in our lives. And if you've been looking for a way to collect those stories but aren't sure how to start, I have a recommendation for you. StoryWorth makes it easy. Every week, they email a loved one of your choosing a question prompt that you pick. For example, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? And what aspects of having children didn't turn out the way you expected? Your loved one responds to that email with a story of any length. You will receive copies of these emails as they are submitted, and after one year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and any photos provided into a keepsake book. A friend recently shared how moving it was that her mom gifted copies of her StoryWorth album to immediate family members, a genius idea for expanding the preservation and sharing of those stories to people in different households and generations. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com edit. That's storyworth.com edit to save $10 on your first purchase. Hello, friends. We are back with Dr. Tina Payne Bryson. My mind is just blown over here. I have a million like Instagram images I want to make <laughs> of your advice. Awesome. Anyway, <laughs> let's go to... Um, my last main question, which is about life skills. It's something I talk about a lot on this show, but my question is probably bigger than life skills because I'm curious about what your advice would be to a parent who, in this specific example, really wants to help their kid learn and be a functional human being by doing things and learning things, but in a situation where your kid is very resistant, kind of like not wanting to get out of the bathtub. How do you gently guide them and make progress without being completely overbearing and then perhaps going into your own parent shame spiral. <laughs> I have a really good suggestion here. And it's, it's not just littles. It's also like teenagers who won't get up out of bed in the morning or, you know, whatever it is, the, whether they're 23 or they're two or anywhere in between one of the best ways to elicit cooperation and to move through resistance is play and playfulness. Ooh, okay. So, because here's the deal. So from a neurobiological perspective, play and play states are opposite of threat and reactive states. Mm. So like, and, and, you know, um, uh, there's this phenomenal, um, researcher, um, known as the rat tickler, um, and since I'm over 50, I'm blanking on his name right now. Um, but it'll come to me in a minute, probably as soon as we hang up. Um, uh, oh, I almost had it. Okay. Anyway, maybe it'll come to me in a minute. Um, I can picture his face and I, I've said his name a million times in my work, but, um, I'm blanking on it right now. Um, but he, um, he did these amazing studies where, um, these rat rats who knew they play and, um, he, they would chart how much they were playing and then they would introduce a cat hair into the cage and they would completely stop playing and go into these like, oh, there's a threat. So play has to stop. So play mm. is a privilege and benefit that emerges from senses from a state of safety. 
Um, and Stephen Porges has this beautiful term, neuroception, which is a not, it's not conscious. It's kind of deeper in our brains and our sensory system, lower, uh, much lower in our, our bodies and lower brain. That is like a type of perception that determines if something is safe or threatening. Um, and it's constantly running to protect us, right? So we want to promote a neuroception of safety, not a neuroception of threat, because when, when someone experiences a neuroception of threat, they actually go into reactive states. That's where we start seeing, you know, oppositionality and, Mm -hmm. you know, the, all the fight, flight, freeze or checking out, um, kinds of things. Um, what we want to do instead is activate a neuroception of safety. And by the way, this also plays into discipline because when our children have a neuroception of safety, because we're using, um, tones and nonverbal communication that communicate safety as opposed to threat, they're much more likely to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, what happens here is when we are playful in our approach, it keeps our brains in our, our upper, you know, upstairs brain where we're accessing all of our problem solving and empathy and flexibility and all of those things, the ability to cognitively reframe. And it does for our children too. So for example, I'll give a, a teenager example. So my son this isn't like a big behavior, but it was really annoying me. Like he knew he, we were having dinner at six o'clock and I'm yelling up like, Hey, come down. It's dinner. Like the food's getting cold. Um, and of course he can't hear me cause his earbuds are in. So I have to come upstairs and, you know, and he's just has no idea and stuff. So I sit on him and he's, <laughs> he's over six feet and I'm five, four. So I sit on him and I'm like, Oh, thank God you didn't come downstairs 15 minutes ago because I'm so tired from walking upstairs. So I'm so glad I have a place to rest. Um, and then I kind of roll my eyes and like, you know, and, and grab his arm and yank him up out of bed. And I'm like, come on, we've been waiting on you, you know? So there's a playfulness mm-hmm. there. Um, instead of being like, that's so rude. We've been waiting for you for 15 minutes, you know, then, then what's the family dinner going to be like? Right. So I think just bringing that kind of playfulness sometimes, you know, depending on your humor, like sarcasm, obviously not immature sarcasm can be really fun, um, with, with older kids. Um, with our little kids, like don't get your, don't get in your car seat because my imaginary friend Herman is sitting there today. And if <gasps> oh you sit gosh, on him, he's going to yell and scream. And then the only thing that calms Herman down is if I do that weird dance. And so that'd be really embarrassing. So please don't get in your car seat. They can't wait to get in the car seat and then you have to do a weird dance, but thank God, you know, I'm, I'll do the dance, buckle you in and get on the merry way. Um, so I think playfulness um, and play is what um, really moves them out of these um, things. The other thing I would say that, you know, and sometimes we don't feel like I have parents like I don't want to put on an effing puppet show to get my kids to put their shoes on. What I will say is the energy that we put into coming up with something fun or a way of approaching something in a playful way um, cuts down on a lot of the drama. It saves yeah. us a lot of emotional and physical energy. But I think the other thing too is when your child is in a good place and you're in a good place and things you're regulated, they're regulated, things feel good between you. That's a great time to say, Hey, I've been noticing that, you know, when I, when I try to talk to you about your plan for getting, you know, getting your permit, um, paperwork done for your driver's license, um, you know, you, you kind of are like, yeah, 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 I got it. And you're kind of, you shut me down. Um, and then you don't do anything. So I'm noticing that that's happening. And I'm, I'm wondering what your take on it is. Like, do you want me to back off? Like, is, am I saying it in a way that, that feels like I'm critical? Like something here in this conversation isn't really working. And the way we're doing this isn't really working. So I'd love some feedback on how you think we could make this better. So Mm. really just involve them in that kind of a conversation. Like, Hey, we're, I'm screaming at you to get up. You don't get up. I scream at you to get up. You don't get up. We both end up hating each other by breakfast time. So that's not working. What could we do differently? I mean, just keep it really simple. Yeah. I love that. I love that you gave examples at both ends of the spectrum, you know, car seat to a teenager. And I just want to quickly call out um, an example from my brother-in-law who um, has worked with children for a long time. And back when Violet was a toddler, she is the most delightful, easygoing child now, but she was just a grumpy toddler. I think it I think she didn't like being pre-verbal, like not being able to express right. herself fully was really hard for her anyway. So washing her hands, it, it was always a chore. It was like <laughs> this thing. So he's visiting us from California. We ask her to wash her hands. She starts to put up a big stink and he says to her, oh, my gosh, have you ever made a bubble sandwich? I, I'm going to go make a bubble sandwich. You want to come? And so now our joke around the house is like whenever we think of him, we think bubble sandwich and how he solves so all cute. magical problems. <laughs> 
I love that. But well, I wanted that. Yeah. It's so much like parenting is so much like you're a spin doctor, right? It's like my kid doesn't want to eat a sandwich. And I'm like, no, but that's race car turkey. Like you didn't yeah. even know that's yeah. not just turkey. It's race car turkey. And they're like, I love race car turkey. And they eat the sandwich. <laughs> right. So I think it's we're so much of it is about like how we pitch it. Right. And being a spin doctor. But so, yeah, that's the playfulness piece. I love that with the bubble sandwich. Um, so good. And then the other is just eliciting their advice like, hey, this isn't working. It doesn't feel good to you. It doesn't feel good to me. And then I'll say, too, this could be another whole podcast episode, too, is like thinking like because the brain wires from associations and because like we want them to have positive associations. Like, you know, for me, I was in a period where by the time I was dropping my kids off at school, we all hated each other. It was so stressful every morning. And I was like, I don't like how this feels in my nervous system. I don't like how it feels relationally. Like this isn't working. What could I do? How can I make it more peaceful and positive in the mornings? And then I was like, well, duh, I know some things. And so I would just like start putting music on in the mornings, having music on in the mornings Mm -hmm. when we were getting ready for school, it changed the feel of what was happening because our brains are like, oh, music is hangout time. It's pleasant, you know, whatever. So sometimes just making little, little changes and little doing little experiments um, can reduce a lot of reactivity and resistance in us and in our kids. Amazing. Okay. I have you on the hook for one last super quick question. At the end of every Edit Your Life episode, I share, or I ask my guests to share, in this case, what is called Your Next Edit. It's a really actionable tip that listeners can consider doing right away after they finish listening to this episode. So in the context of our conversation, I know we covered a lot, but I would love if you have a Your Next Edit for this episode, something really tactical that you recommend people try. Um, The most practical thing I can think of that I think is game-changing is the next time your child has a behavior that you don't like or that drives you crazy or that makes you afraid for their future or whatever, not not cool behavior that you don't like. Um, Pause before you respond. We don't have Mm -hmm. to respond immediately after it happened. We've been told, like, if you don't do it right after they do it, they won't learn. That's true for dogs, but not for even two-year-olds. We can wait. Um, Pause. And really take a minute to think And it's fine to even say to your kid, like, that wasn't okay, and I'm not ready to talk to you about it. I want to think about how I want to respond to that. That's totally perfectly fine. Or just wait. And then I want you to do a mental exercise to say, okay, what is what is it that what skill does my child not have to navigate that well? Mm -hmm. Or what is it my child needs to learn in order to do the behavior the way I want them to do it? And how can I teach them that? How can I let them practice that skill? And if you can really just remind yourself, it's always about teaching. And then how can I teach that lesson and giving them those reps, those repeated experiences. So if you can start the next moment thinking about this discipline thing is a teaching and skill building opportunity. So that's what I'm going to do. So the actionable is make it about teaching every time. How can I teach? Beautiful, beautiful. Tina, thank you so much for your time and all of your genius expertise and examples (laughs) and actions. I mean, this is just, uh, this is Edit Your Life Gold here. Thank you so much. And I I just loved talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I always love talking to you. I'm so happy to have this time with you. And you can hit me up anytime to make your wish list. I love suggesting gifts for you. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Be careful what you ask for. Take care, Tina. (laughs) Bye-bye. Okay, friends, you'll find the show notes for this episode, including links to resources and related episodes at edityourlifeshow.com. As ever, I would love to hear your thoughts and questions. Come say hello on Instagram or Facebook at Edit Your Life Show or send an email to edityourlifeshow at gmail.com. I would also be grateful if you would drop Edit Your Life a review on Apple Podcasts or tell a pod-loving friend about the show. Thanks for listening. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly. Your old pals from Toddler Purgatory. Two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And this is our new podcast, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. What happens when your creative spark just seems to disappear? Gone. Poof. Bye. See ya. What happens when life gets in the way of your creativity instead of nourishing it? That's what happened to Molly and me. We felt like the thing that drove us creatively stopped working and impending doom had in fact impended. Totally. So we decided to do something about it. And that was 
steal ideas about getting unstuck from the most creative people we can find. We talk to guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. And we're not just talking Bob Ross type paint on paper artists here, though we talk to them too. We're talking to actors, creative directors, dancers, and people who are working hard to be their best creative selves in a world that can sometimes feel real uncreative. We all have something to teach each other, so let's steal their ideas together. Join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Pandemics, school calendars, world events, lack of sleep, oh, get out of their life gunk. And let's get back to your best creative self. Subscribe to Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. You're not going to want to miss an episode. Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking